I'm Michael McMullen. Welcome once again to the World Snooker Tour podcast, where my guest this week is Jamie Jones. Jamie, welcome along. Thanks for having me, Michael. It feels like you've been around such a long time, Jamie, even though you're still a young man. And a lot of that, I think, is because of the headlines you attracted when you were just 14 and made a maximum in tournament play. At the time, you were the youngest ever. So how do you hold your nerve together to do something like that at such a young age? Um, I, I was like knocking on the door a few times, to be honest. I missed on like 120 odd and a, and a couple of other things. And it's the same as anything. I remember my first century break. I, I had a few 80s and 90s and couldn't quite get over the line. But um, one day everything just clicked. And uh, yeah, I was in my local club and uh, I couldn't believe it when I'd done it, to be honest. But uh, it was an amazing achievement looking back. As I say, yours was a name we heard about a long, long time ago. It was a very young player. It's such a strong scene in Wales. It always is. There are always so many good young players there. And you won the Welsh Amateur Championship, not just once, but twice. And that's a really hard thing to do. Only a very good player is going to be capable of doing that. Yeah, um, I remember my first one more than any of them. I beat um, a guy called Phil Williams, who's been Mm. on the tour off and on over the years. And Phil is a very, very old-school Welsh dogged player, you know. I I played him in... uh, Merthyr Labour Club. I beat him 9-8. I actually had three centuries in that game. Um, I just remember being so delighted, you know, having to graft against someone like Phil and to play as well as I did was, uh, yeah, it was an amazing day, that. And there are so many players like that in Wales, as you alluded to there. You think of Darren Morgan, Lee Walker, Terry Griffiths back in the day. There's something about Welsh players. They're just so tough to beat. Yeah, um, I mean, my club back in the day... 20-odd years ago, you had me, myself, Michael White, and Daniel Wells, all in the same club, all three juniors who ended up on the main tour. Mm. Um, but aside from that, we had a, like a break board on the, on the wall in there, and there was 30 or 40-odd century breakers playing out of that club. So, I mean, yes, Wales was amazing, but even my club within Wales was just unbelievable, you know? And, and there's no doubt that's why me, Michael, and Daniel progressed very mm. quickly as, as um, juniors was because we were getting beaten by better players every day. We were learning very quickly, obviously playing against each other as well. Um, we were just really lucky to be around. I think, I think the club was lucky to have us, talented youngsters, and we were very lucky to have the club. Um, yeah, it was amazing days, yeah. You look at the Welsh success there's been in the game over the years. You even look now at the number of Welsh players there are when you consider what a small country it is. It's just part of the fabric of Welsh society, isn't it? That's the reason. Yeah, I think, um, especially when you go into the valleys, you've got your clubs with one and two tables, so like everyone's sort of fighting to get onto the tables. So you're sort of brought up with that match play snooker. It's not like no kamikaze stuff, you know. Everyone's just trying to play to win the next game, to stay on the table usually mm. when you go into the clubs in the Valley. So it's, it's always produced very good, hard match players. Um, and I think, you know, I think it's carrying on. We've got some fantastic youngsters coming through now as well. So you got onto the tour at quite a young age. But back in those days, it was very different because you only got one year. Now, if you come on, you're guaranteed two years. So it was so hard to get those points in one season to stay on, and there weren't many tournaments to settle in anyway. So you were on and off a couple of times at a young age. Yeah, I mean, um, the first year was just, I think it's always a learning curve for most players, you know, but especially um, having not having that many tournaments to play in. Um, I think I qualified for the Grand Prix, uh, which was like my second or third tournament. It was around Robin uh, mm. back then. So I managed to get a few games under my belt. But um, there was no way I was ready for the tour then. Uh, you know, it was just sort of seeing where I was at, you know, and then 
back to the amateur scene then to try and requalify. And you did. Back on for a third time in mm. 2010. And good timing, really, because you were a bit older by then. And also, that was the very point in the game's history when we suddenly had an explosion in the number of tournaments, even all the PTCs and everything. It was a great chance for a young player to come in and really learn his craft. Yeah, um, I just remember just being so happy with being able to play every week or every two weeks or whatever it was back then. It just seemed to me to be a massive amount of tournaments, you know, just more more opportunities. Um, i done well in one of the PTCs back then. I think I lost a ding in the final of one of them. I can't remember now. But that's, that's when I first realised, I thought... Well, I've beaten a few good players beer in a row over the week. You know, I can win. I can win matches consistently on the tour. That's the first time I ever realised. <clears throat> uh, yeah, and you know, and and I sort of flourished in that environment. Then playing every week, matches after matches. That's the way I like. You know, I like to keep busy. And um, yeah, I just remember being really happy with 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 everything for the first time within snooker. Then yeah. And at the end of your second season back on, all of a sudden you get to the quarterfinals of the World Championship. So let's talk about your run there. First round, having come through qualifying, of course, you're up against Sean Murphy, who had been in the final three years before and back in 2005 had gone all the way and won the championship. So a huge landmark for you to beat him. Yeah, I mean, obviously that was a massive game for me, but I I remember that period of time, um, the month before I got to the PTC Grand Finals in Galway Mm. and I beat Higgins over there. And then I thought, wow, you know, I'm beating one of my heroes on TV. Like, I'm pretty good. I can do this. I can do it on the big stage. Um, gone to the qualifiers. I beat Ricky Walden to qualify. So, like, I'm coming off the back of, like, really, really good results now. I'm up against Murphy in the Crucible. I'm just happy to be there, by the way. You know, of course I think I can win. Hmm. I just want to walk through them curtains out into the and just lap it up, really. Um, I, I remember that first session being very, very difficult. I remember bridging over a ball to pot of black I think it was I couldn't keep my hand still I just I didn't know I was going to push the queue through and I came out of that session 5-4 down I think and my mate said to me you know just stick in there you've done well that's the hardest session you'll ever have to play um, and I remember in the night then just sort of coming out and I remember potting a few good long balls and just sort of putting him under it really you know um, I can't remember a great deal about the, the session to win um, but I just remember sort of being nervous, but dealing with it pretty good at the time, yeah. And then you've got Andrew Higginson in the second round, and I've spoken to him about this quite recently, in fact. It was an unusual situation because you've got a chance to reach the quarterfinals of the World Championship, and of course you respected each other as very good players, but you weren't up against one of the top guys. You both knew it was a huge chance for you, and that was reflected, I think, in how close the match was most of the way. Yeah, I think, look, it was a great draw for both of us. I felt I could beat Andrew. I'm sure Andrew felt he could have beaten me. Um, I think I, had, I took a 10-6 lead in that match. Andrew came back to 10-all, and the interval came at the rim, uh, the interval came at the, the perfect time for me. You know, I came out then, um, and I had a couple of breaks in, I think. And I remember potting a couple of good long balls that I had to get, similar to the Murphy game. And I, you know, I, I was potting them that week. There's no doubt about it. I was going for them, and I was getting them. So it was like, you know, I was just feeling very dangerous. I felt as if I was at a free reign. You know, I thought if I lose now. It's a great tournament for me anyway. Mm. So that's a really dangerous position to be in then because all of a sudden you're not really feeling that much pressure anymore. So from 10 all, you pulled away to win that one 13-10. You're in the quarterfinals of the World Championship now. There must be something in your head, even coming in as an outsider, that says, I'll win three more matches here, I'm world champion. Do you start to think that way? Um, myself personally, no. Um, I can't really remember exactly what I was thinking. I was just loving being out there. 
the crowd sort of took to me. I played a pretty attractive style of snooker in that event, I thought. You know, I was going for my shot. I made a lot of century breaks um, to get to that stage. And I just remember thinking, like, this is just great. I'm under no pressure. I'm playing in my sort of childhood dream scenario. Just enjoy it. I, I was buzzing. I was just happy to be out there, yeah. And in that quarterfinal, then, you played Ali Carter. He goes 12-8 up going into the last interval. But you gave him one hell of a scare after that. Mm. Yeah, look, I mean, even for me at that stage, looking back, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't that great tactically. Well, I say I wasn't that great. I wasn't good tactically. So to be 12-8 with someone of Carter's pedigree was like, well, you know, that's not a bad result in itself. And then I remember at the end being like 12-8 and thinking, look, I've got you by potting balls. I'm just going to throw the kitchen sink and I'm just going to start going for everything. And I've looked back at that game and I started to pot him. I can, the camera went on Ali a couple of times in his chair and he's like shaking his head thinking, this guy is just crazy going for these balls. But they were going in and I thought, why not keep doing what I've done to get you? Um, yeah, and obviously, I remember Ali potting a good black, I think, at 12-11. He was on the side cush, um, or maybe 12-10, I can't remember the score now. Um, but he made a very good break, you know, and um, deserved to win, I think, yeah. Well, you did get back to 12-11, so you almost took it to a decider. Mm. Then he got over the line. And I remember the way you played there, and you're absolutely right what you say. It was a very attractive style. The thing I remember as well, you were a real momentum player, mm. When you won a frame, you were then going on and producing another good break in the next frame. And Would that be something you would remember from that run, that there were real bursts yeah. of fluency? Yeah, I, I think looking back on my style of play in them days, it was very, very a burst, then a bit of a lull, a burst, then a little bit of a lull, you know. So obviously over time, I've had to try and make, make myself a more consistent player overall. But I mean, you know, in those long matches in the World Championships, those little bursts can really help you because even if you're behind you can get straight back into it. Or if you're in front, you can really push on in no time. Um, and that's what I was doing, you know. And um, I think my style has always lent itself to the longer games. I've seemed to do better in the longer matches, purely because I can go on these little runs, you know, and score very quickly. So quarterfinals at the Crucible, great achievement. You've been to a few semis, though, in ranking events. And sorry to bring it up, but the Australian Open mm. against John Higgins, 4-0 up on the brink of getting through to the final, and then he turns it round to win 6-4. But that's what someone like John can do, isn't it? I just remember that game. I, 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 I beat Selby a couple of rounds before, and I was playing really good. I've gone out there against John, and, and I thought, I was confident. Um, you know, I've gone 4-0 up in no time, but I just remember then being absolutely shut out of the match. And then I was sitting there thinking, this is, this is how good these guys are. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I, don't felt, I don't feel like I lost that match from 4-0. He beat me. He was just like either potting a long red and making a break, or if he was playing safe, I was welded to the cush every time. And he just completely and utterly outclassed me, you know. And if I'd missed balls and I'd missed a lot of chances, I would be really gutted about that result. But I came off and I thought, you know, wow, this is the standard I need to try and reach. And you got to another ranking semi final just two years later and came even closer, didn't you, to getting through to the final when you played Sean Murphy at the Paul Hunter Classic? Yeah, I mean, again, I played very good. Uh, I remember, I remember sort of playing a shot in the decider on a. I was high on the black, and I've tried to sort of drag it in. And even Sean, after the match, said, "Oh, you should have punched it round two cushions and just hit the ball." I sort of decelerated on this ball, and that's my lasting memory of that match. But, but again, I mean, that's one sort of bad shot that I played. Uh, you know, that week I played great. So I mean, you always think of the. You always remember the little things you've done wrong. Mm -hmm. 
I've done a ton of good things that week, you know, and obviously I lost to a great player. So Just one frame away from getting to the final, but it was another good week for you. I've got to ask you, though, Jamie, about what happened the following year. We'll not go into too much depth about it, but you ended up getting a lengthy suspension. I think it's very important to point out that you were cleared of any involvement in match fixing. There's yeah. no suggestion that you had done anything wrong on that front, but you got drawn into a situation, basically. Yeah. How did all that hit you? Uh, well, quite, quite. to be quite frankly, it was by far the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Um, you know, I, I got punished on the, on the thing that I admitted doing, which was having knowledge about another match. Um, looking back at it, obviously, I, I, I should have brought it to the attention of, of the authorities. Look, I didn't. Um, and I got punished for it. You know, I got severely punished. You know, I had a, I ended up having a year ban, which ended up knocking me off the tour, which turned into two years. Um, but weirdly, the worst situation in my life has probably turned out to be one of the best things that's ever happened to me. You know, I sort of, I had some really, really dark times where, I, you know, I wasn't going to play again. Simple as that. I wasn't going to play again. You'd made up your mind definitively. Well, it, you were well, it, finished. Look, look. A year was long for me. Yeah. That that year, obviously, with with the way the rankings worked, was turning into two years. And I thought, I, I can't do another year of this. How am I going to come back and play? And apart from anything else, you've still got to earn a living. So yeah. maybe you were thinking of doing something else. Well, I you know I I worked a couple of different jobs. Um, you know, I just sort of after the initial shock and really you know bad time. I went out and got a job like everyone else. I mean, what else am I going to do, really? You know. Um, what sort of jobs were you doing, Jamie? Um, I've, I've delivered parcels for Amazon. I worked for the local council cutting grass. I just sort of I needed to get out. I needed to get out of my house and get out of my bedroom, to be honest, with you, because it was a d- depression that I was feeling. I was like, look, I could still be stuck in that bedroom now. Do you know what I mean? It was it was bad, but I mean, I got I come to a point one day where I thought, flipping hell, I can't feel any worse than I feel, so I'll just get up and I'll go and try and do something. I didn't know what I was going to do. But life works itself out for you sometimes. If you try and do the right things, you know, you can you can work stuff out. It always comes across, I feel from you, that you're someone who has a great love for the game, which surprisingly you can't actually say about every professional snooker player. So someone who clearly loves playing so much, that must have made it even harder that you were being deprived of that great joy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all I've done, really. You know, I obviously, when I was younger, I worked a couple of bar jobs and stuff to give me a couple of quid to come to tournaments and stuff. But really, snooker's all I've ever done. So for me not to be playing, not to be competing, not to have the draws coming through, the, the emails, you know, you like to open the draws and all the rest of it, a massive shock, you know. But um, like I said, I think, you know, I'd done the right things when I was away from the game. You know, I didn't drown my sorrows in a pub for, for you know, I did for a bit. <laughs> but, you know, I didn't let it really, really affect my life any more than it, than it did. Um, which allow, has allowed me to come back. I mean, listen, I think I've come back stronger than I, I think I'm stronger now than I've ever been. Purely because I, I, I tried to take the positives out of a horrific situation. There wasn't many positives to take at the time, but little by little, I took one by one. and I feel better now playing snooker. I don't get so down when I lose. I don't get you know too high when I win. Like, I know, you know, I, I know that there's other things that can happen to you in life. Um, that are more important than winning and losing snooker matches. And doing a regular day's work like that, I guess, when you do come back to the game, must put thoughts in your head of other people have to do jobs like this all the time. I have an opportunity to play snooker for a living. And that makes you appreciate it all the more, I suppose. Yeah, I think like um, snooker can get on top of you at times. A lot of pressure. 
there's a lot of long hours on the table in a club, you know, you, you're in closed doors. But I mean, when you go away and you work another job and like you've got to go and work, I mean, snooker doesn't, when you come back to snooker then, look, it's not, it's not an easy sport to, you know, it can be very mentally draining. But I think you can appreciate then, oh, you know, I can work on this today or I can do that today. When you're going to work another job, you sort of do what you're told a bit. So, you know, people, I think snooker players need to realise the freedom that you have got as well, you know, even though there's a lot of pressure. So it was time to move on. The ban had been completed. You had your opportunity to get back on when you went to the Q School in 2020. The emotions you must have had, Jamie, when you got through Mm. and the fact that you could now put those bad times behind you and just get on with life on the professional snooker tour, it must have been such an intense feeling. Yeah, I mean, it it was more a relief of... I didn't didn't want the lasting memory of Jamie Jones to be, oh, he was a good player, but he ended because he got banned. Like, that that was the overwhelming thing of it. I mean, whatever goes on on the tour now, whether I achieve all my dreams or I don't do any good at all, I've come back and I've, and I've you know, given it a really good shot, you know. Um, yeah, it was, it, was a wee, it was a weird one, really, because I didn't expect to get through because I hadn't really played. I'd put about the best part of a month or two months practising in between when I was working and stuff. So I've gone there thinking, look, it'd be great if I get through. If I don't, well, I have, you know, I'm not a full-time player now. But then obviously, as I, you know, as I realised then, I'm back on the tour, it was like sort of time to go back to work then. And you settled in very quickly. Good results straight from the off, really, when you came back on. Yeah, I won a, I won a good few first-round games. I was coming up against sort of like season pros, and, and they were beating me quite comfortably, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I hadn't played for the best part of two years, but still, I was coming off very disappointed when I was losing. Um, so I was just trying to... Find a way of stringing a few matches together at that point, yeah. And only a few months after you've been in that situation of not being on the tour, you're back in a big semi-final. The mm. Scottish Open, albeit that it was played at Milton Keynes, like pretty much everything else that season. Beaten heavily by Mark Selby, but <clears throat> how could anyone have lived with him that day? He was immense. Yeah, just, again, um, another f- unbelievable performance against me in a semi-final. Look, he, he, he was just flawless. He was potting long balls and making breaks, and I just sort of sat down and watched him all night, to be fair. But, um, yeah, you know, it was a good talk. It was, that was the first time, like, that season where I'd just strung a few games together. You know, I'd beat some good players. Um, so I wasn't overly disappointed. Just, you know, if I'd got in and I'd squandered my chances, I would have come away thinking, oh, you know, what if? But he played great, and, and you know, I, I got a couple of quid in my pocket, which I really needed at that point. The quick fire round, Jamie, where we learn a bit more about you. What's your favourite song? Oof. Favourite song? Um, I quite like a, a, a wide variety of songs, really. I've um, been listening to a bit of Oasis lately, so rock and roll stuff is pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I'm not like, I'm pretty much, I listen to a wide variety of stuff. So it's for me to put one song out there, but I'll go rock and roll star, Oasis. Best place to go for a run? Oh, it's got to be the Welsh Mountains, I think. It's oh, spectacular. Um, listen, where I live, before lockdown, I didn't realise how many good routes there are. And I, there's a few mountains behind me um, that are amazing. But, um, yeah, anywhere in the Welsh Valleys. Favourite movie? Oh, again, I'm not much of a movie person, really, but I'll go Wolf of Wall Street. Oh, yeah, great film. One thing you would change about life on the professional snooker tour? I'm not really one for like moaning and groaning about rules. I think it's what you make of it. My, personally now, um, especially since I've been doing a lot of running lately, I love coming to every event. I've got my trainers in my bag. 
I'm, I'm on the practice table and I'm back to the hotel trainers on and I'm exploring the local place. So as far as I'm concerned, it's, uh, it's what you make it, really. Players you'd go on a night out with? Oh, I'm sure the, I'm sure the same names keep cropping up. You'd have mm. to go Matthew Stevens, one of the <laughs> one of the best. Uh... Can't think why anyone would want to go on a night out with Matthew. <laughs> yeah, no, he? no, I'd, uh, he'd be yeah, great fun, wouldn't he? Yeah, Matthew Stevens, Maguire, the uh, usual suspects. Yeah. Really, yeah, the party boys. <laughs> you need a few of those in the game. Let's talk about it overall, then, Jamie. Since you came back onto the tour, how do you feel it's gone for you? Um, look, a couple of years ago. Uh, if I could have been, you know, consistent and just winning a few games, I would have been happy. I've done better than I thought I would have coming back. You know, look, I'm, I think I'm number 29 as, as of today in the world. I think my highest I've ever been is 27. So, I mean, in, you know, in two years, the way I'm going, I'm just going in the right direction. I mean, um, I, feel, I feel like I prepare better now. I appreciate where I am more now. Like I said, I'm, I've got my running shoes in my bag, so I'm running on every event. I'm just, I'm, I've got a different life on tour now to before. Um, whereas, you know, I may be hanging around pubs, watching games of football. I don't really want to be watching, like, just waiting for my match. I'm experiencing the tournaments and the venues now for what they are and what I want to do, which is going about exploring, doing a little run. Um, you know, I, I hook up with local runners um, on Strava sometimes and go, I just meet new people, really. So, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm just really enjoying it. This is like talking to Ronnie. This is the way he talks about running and coming yeah. to tournaments. It's a great release for him. Yeah, I mean, it's like a little break almost. I mean, yeah. it's a lot of pressure when you're playing, but that's always been the case. Now I'm like just coming away to events and just, yeah, just really trying to get everything I can out of it. So you're doing all that and also obviously keeping your practice going as well. What kind of practice setup do you have? Do you have a good base somewhere and other yeah, guys you work with? Yeah, I've, I've, got, um, I've got a little room in my hometown in Neath, which is under a solicitor's, Willis Legal solicitor's. They've been kind enough just to let me use the room, to be honest with you. They have the odd day down there where they have a couple of games, but it's, I don't see anyone in there. I'm just really lucky. I've fallen on my feet with that one. And where are you in your career, Jamie, in terms of how good you feel you can be? How far away are you from the level you feel you can aspire to? Um, whether, I, whether I do the things that I think I'm capable of is another thing, but I've never felt more ready in my life. Um, everything, everything seems geared up for me now to have the best years of my life going forward. I feel really, really fresh coming to events. I feel physically fit, mentally fit. I'm practicing well. I'm happy. I mean, what better position to be in? Do you feel, like most people on the circuit, including me, that you're definitely capable of being a tournament winner? Do you feel that that's something you have to tick off to convince yourself you've lived up to what you can achieve? Yeah, I mean, I won't be happy retiring unless I've won a tournament or, or even a few tournaments. You know, I, I 100% feel that I'm, that I'm far better than I've ever shown on the tour. Um, you know... My, I know everyone says how good they are in practice and blah, 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 blah. I'm sure my practice game is capable of winning events. It's just me converting it to the match table consistently enough to get through a tournament. And I'm sure if I, if I was to win one, there could be others on the way as well. It's funny, years ago, people would have said, a player of your age, oh, he's running out of time to mm -hmm. win a tournament. But you look at it now, there are guys much older than you are yeah. who have come through and win their first tournament. So that takes a bit of pressure off as well, doesn't it? Knowing yeah. you've got plenty of time. I mean, I mean, look, you can see Ronnie and the boys sort of playing for another 15, 20 years, the way they're looking after themselves as well. And arguably, they're probably playing better now than they ever have. So that gives you that time ahead of you to look at them. But I, I also feel far fitter and I'm fresher at 34 than I did at 24. Like back then, I wasn't looking after myself as well. So like 
like I said, it, now I've never felt as good as I do now in my life. So, I mean, I, I hope I got my best years in front of me. Yeah. And as a Welshman, Jamie, I've got to ask you this to finish off with. How excited are you about the World Cup? First time in 64 years. Are you getting into the spirit of it? Yeah, I mean, I'm not much of a football fan, but I like to go out and have a few beers with my mates and all that. And obviously, it's, it's brilliant that they've qualified now. Um, you usually see the guys with the bucket hats and the red and mm. you know all the rest of it so people are really getting into it and yeah it should be really good just a great celebration for the nation and an expression of Welshness I guess yeah I think also as well there's no reason why we can't sort of sneak under the radar you know all the pressure gets heaped on England because of all their star names and obviously rightly so but we've got some stars in our country as well you know some big players who can do some damage so it'd be, be interesting to see how they do well, it's going to be interesting to see how you do for the rest of your career as well. I have to say, Jamie, I've always loved watching you play. I think you're a very good player to watch. Obviously, huge potential, and we look forward to seeing you deliver on it in the years to come. Thanks very much for joining us. All right, cheers, Michael. Thanks. Next time on the World Snooker Tour podcast, it's Estonia's only professional, Andres Petrov. When I saw that I only need one good break to become a pro, and then... I saw that my opponent leaves me easy red with reds uh, wide open all over the table. I just thought, well, now I need to focus really hard just not to make stupid mistakes. So that's coming up next time on the World Snooker Tour podcast. And don't forget our bonus content, the 147, rounding up the week's snooker headlines in 147 seconds every Tuesday. Until next time, thanks so much for listening and goodbye.